Hello, you're listening to Angel Nears the Podcast. We're a Silicon Valley community and podcast for upstarts where founders and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to successfully build and scale your startups. Uh, I'm your host, Oleg Kuchikov, and our guest today is Sam Folk, the co-founder and CEO of Femtosense, a startup which is developing an ultra-low-power AI processor for the real-time edge that's designed to make AI processing viable for low-cost consumer electronics. Sam will tell me if that all made sense. I'm excited to bring Sam on to talk about the sparse future of AI powering the inside of consumer electronics. How'd that sound, Sam? And welcome to the show. It sound, sounded great, though. Like, I'm sure. The, thank you. Thank you for having me on uh, Angel Nears and uh, looking forward to uh, you know, meeting the audience and uh, telling everybody all about Femtosense. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to learn. I typically start these interviews with just a little bit of get to know you with the guests. So start off there. Tell us about your background and yeah, what kind of led you to uh, co-founding a company? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I guess, uh, you know, doing the whole uh, starting a company wasn't something that I'd really thought about much before uh, starting the actual company. But my backstory, as well as my, my co-founders, this backstory that, you know, we were doing our PhDs. Uh, this was at Stanford University. Uh, we were uh, in what's called the Brains and Silicon Lab uh, all together, building AI hardware. And, you know, we're getting close to PhD graduation in uh, 2018. And the AI market, uh, especially for hardware, was, you know, really, really starting to heat up then. So we looked around and, you know, we didn't really see much of anything like what we were doing. And so, you know, if we were honest with ourselves and uh, it was true, the kinds of things that we put in, you know, grant applications that this technology is going to be more, more power efficient, uh, you know, lower cost, uh, more performant, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why don't you commercialize that? <laughs> the market timing is there. The technology is different enough. So that's, that's really what got us to start this company is really identifying that there is an opportunity, uh, seeing that, you know, if you bring this technology to the commercial world, you can really uh, develop it you know, much more rapidly than you could in any sort of academic setting. And of course, there's the, the economic opportunity. So that's, that's our backstory. And that's why we started this company. Can you just expand a little bit? So you were in the brains and silicon lab at Stanford, I guess, just tell me a little bit more about what you were doing there. Yeah, so the Brains and Silicon Lab is uh, in the field. It's called uh, neuromorphic engineering, if you want to look that up. But the idea is that there are some if you really look kind of low level uh, at electronics, uh, at the devices we use to build uh, ultimately computers and all the wonderful gadgets we have, there are some eerie similarities between these uh, electronic components, you know, transistors specifically, and the, the kind of behavior you'd see in, uh, you know, neurons uh, in your brain if you're on the neuroscience side. And so, you know, long ago, when people were first starting to build circuits and, and you know, combine them into bigger systems, you know, they, they sort of saw these similarities and decided that, well, if these things are similar down at the physical level, transistors in subtextual domain and uh, neuron membranes and their electrochemical gradients, then why don't you build things with electronics that work uh, a little bit similar to these neurons, right? Because if you start with building blocks, then maybe you could build more interesting things. So this was kind of traces its, its history back to, you know, Carver Mead, that's a name that, you know, uh, would be familiar to anybody doing uh, circuits in digital logic, you know, is one of the big popularizers of uh, BLSI. So how do you uh, integrate lots and lots of um, circuits together in a coherent manner with, you know, principled rules? 
Uh, so you can really scale, right? How do you get to a trillion transistors? Like you're not gonna, <laughs> you're not gonna do that by hand. And so this other branch of uh, neuromorphic engineering was another one of the brainchilds from that line of work, or sort of you know that that. Uh, from, from Carver and uh, his group. And uh, that's where we kind of came from as, uh, as a lab. So the idea is that if you can make uh, electronic circuits work very similarly, like maybe follow the same governing differential equations as uh, a neuron would, then it becomes just a question of how do you arrange them together to create you know, uh, interesting uh, intelligent systems. Uh, so it's very weird from a circuit design perspective. It's very not what, uh, very far from what how computers are, you know, mostly almost all built today, but uh, it was different. And so that made for very interesting research and was sort of uh, what we worked on as uh, co-founders uh, while, you know, PhD students, we were building a system called Braindrop, uh, which is fine. You can make little uh, circuits behave like neurons in the differential equation sense, but then the question is, well, how do you get to do anything useful? <laughs> so we were uh, working on a system that you could impose a higher level of description of the behavior, maybe some uh, other kinds of differential equations. Uh, and then there was an automatic way of piling that down to, you know, thousands or millions uh, of these biologically uh, similar neurons, but without having to do it by hand, right? That was that, was, uh, that, was that project. So uh, we did that for a PhD. And um, that's, that's why we said, okay, this stuff is pretty different. Why don't we commercialize this? And yeah, that's, that's femtosense. And femtosense was born. So tell us, um, yeah, what was the, uh, what was the, I guess, what was the problem you're trying to solve for your user or, or what's the seed idea for femtosense? Yeah, the main angle is that, you know, I guess you got to this in the uh, initial tagline, you know, these AI algorithms and applications, they're very interesting, you know, things like ChatGPT are grabbing the headlines. Before that, there was Dolly, before that, there was GPT-3 and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. You can go all the way back to 1960s or 50s if you really want to, you know, take these uh, neural network sort of apps uh, and their history. But one of the problems is that, you know, these things are pretty heavy duty, right? Like you're, you're going to, especially these, these more recent models, like you deploy these in a data center, right? And, you know, you got to cool the thing, you got to spend a lot of money on energy. And you look at how efficient a human brain is, and it's pretty far off uh, what we're doing in, uh, electronics and what you know, uh, you know the biology does, right? So uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, at least a proof of existence that it is possible to do compelling, you know, have some manner of intelligence. How you measure that? That should be much more. That should be able to be done in a much more efficient, from a power and cost perspective, than you know what we currently have. So, and if you can do it more efficiently, then you could say bring something like, you know, ChatGPT uh, into smaller and smaller form factors, which can then, you know, deliver value. It's just like, uh, you know, when computers started, they were the size of, you know, rooms. <laughs> and now we all have a computer in our pocket, right? And it's by making things more efficient and, you know, being, that means you can shrink them down. That means you can take them more places. Uh, and that means you can do more uh, applications, which uh, ultimately are what, what people uh, pay for. So, <laughs> yeah, that was the angle of saying that if you can fundamentally make a more efficient AI system, then you can take it to more places that other people can't do. And you can re similarly realize the value uh, from doing that. When did you decide to go after hearing and hearing aids? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's kind of, there's a few angles you can uh, answer this in. One is um, just historically, the kind of systems that we were building you know, back in the lab were uh, suited to time varying signals uh, and speech and audio and is, you know, by definition kind of happens over time, right? In contrast to something like saying a picture is a cat or dog, right? Like 
you don't have, I mean, yeah, if you can do that in a video, but fundamentally that's kind of a static problem. So the initial kind of technology that we did, which is quite different from what we're doing today, we had many, uh, say, technical pivots along the way, is, um, you know, was, was sort of already on that route. Uh, so that's one angle. You can say, like, kind of where the development came from and, you know, what was uh, seemed like a good fit. Uh, I think the other angle you could say is, well, you know, the vision market is, is quite crowded. <laughs> there are a lot of players there. And so, you know, where do you want to create your beachhead, <laughs> right? Do you want to, you know, play where Redis is playing? I mean, you know, you might also say that the market there is bigger, but do you, you're going to have to pick some sort of beachhead market. And so do you want to go there first or do you want to go there uh, somewhere else? And so we thought, you know, audio was also a nice from a strategic perspective because it wasn't as sort of crowded uh, with, with other players. And it was a little bit more opportunity to get uh, differentiation because that's absolutely <laughs> one of the things you need as a startup. And then, you know, from there, you can, of course, grow into some of these other uh, other areas. Okay. Well, I'll tell you another good reason to get into hearing. Hearing loss affects almost uh, 0.5 billion or 500 million people globally. However, out of those 500 million, only one in six, about 17%, however, only 17% or one in six of those affected adopt hearing aid treatments. The WHO estimates untreated hearing loss costs $750 billion a year in lost productivity and downstream medical care. What would you say are the major factors that affect, you know, low hearing aid adoption rates? Uh, There's a lot of them. (laughs) I think maybe fundamentally it is a, it is a challenging problem. So, you know, as opposed to like vision. So when you, if you have short-sightedness, nearsighted or far-sightedness, you can sort of solve this with a lens, right? That's what glasses is. Hearing is a little bit more, there's a little bit more processing behind that. Like it's uh, sure there is, there are certainly cases where, you know, you have literally lost the the hair cells that will uh, listen to vibrations in the air, which is sound. That's certainly there, but there's also a, you know, perceptual component of that, you know, how does your brain process it or how does the, you know, the cochlea in your ear process it, right? Um, And so this has made it a little bit hard to simply just quote, you know, replace uh, some functionality or add a simple uh, corrective thing. Like human hearing is is quite complicated. <laughs> and so trying to create these products and hearing aids that fix or, or correct any uh, problems people are having is, is has been hard. <laughs> just to just put it very simply, it's a hard processing problem. It's more than just, you know, you know, trying to amplify some of the, the tones of the, the hair cells that uh, you've lost. You can actually look at some of the um, uh, emerging research. It's also how do you sort of pull out what you care about from, you know, the soundscape and not pay attention to everything else. Like that's not really a physical <laughs> uh, problem. That's a uh, intelligence problem, right? And so, you know, these hearing aids, they have deployed classical digital signal processing algorithms in the past uh, to try to approximate uh, and pull out the kinds of things that we're actually interested in hearing and, you know, remove the background. But there, you know, there's there's a lot of room for improvement. And so this is where AI can come in to, you know, address some of these classic old problems of plucking out signal from noise, uh, but now with a new spin. But then the, you know, limiting factor is, well, you know, you're not going to put a big GPU on a hearing aid, right? <laughs> these things also have to be very small, uh, very power efficient. And so this is another reason why this is hard. And, you know, you they can't be, they can't be too expensive because they're already, <laughs> they're already, you know, super expensive as is, you know, a few, a few thousand dollars each. And then, you know, if they're covered by insurance or not, yeah, you're, you're talking about a hard, a hard sort of product market fit uh, as, as we currently have. Well, thanks for unpacking that. Uh, let's talk more about this uh, kind of speech and noise problem. But what what is it in general? Like, yeah, talk about the speech and noise problem, maybe from like a 
technical perspective. We spent some amount of time, you know, getting this podcast set up, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, you had uh, clean, uh, you could hear me clean, you could hear yourself cleanly. And, you know, a lot of that stuff was sort of so that we don't get any, you know, random doors closing or people walking by or babies crying or whatever, right? So we could do that with a podcast, right? But, you know, people don't live in podcasts uh, much as we might like. We go out into the world where, yeah, you have no control <laughs> fundamentally over uh, all the various things around you that, you know, go click or clack and, uh, or even other people, you know, when they talk, right? And you're not trying to pay attention to all that. In fact, if you, you know, try to pay attention to all that, you'd probably lose your mind. Uh, it's just too much. Uh, sensory overload, right? So we are always trying to kind of focus in on some things that we care about. And that's the challenge is how, uh, as a piece of electronics, you know, do you extract what you care about and kind of leave behind everything else? So yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to to describe it. But I think that's the, you know, that's maybe in simple terms, what, what I would say. You get to the heart of it. Yeah. How do we separate that signal from the noise or how do I filter the important thing from the noise? How do digital hearing aids do this today right now in a commercial sense? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a, there's of course, like any uh, mature industry, there's a lot of tricks, things that people can do. These mostly emerge during just classic digital signal processing, you know, heyday. There's a few. So, so some of the techniques are, you know, sort of take a, Take a statistical sampling of sort of your soundscape and then, you know, throw away more or less the average because you call that the background. And then anything that's different from there, like when you say uh, certain words, let that through, right? Like there are gaps between the words that I say, right? And so if you can say on average that I'm not saying things uh, and you could get a baseline of that, you could subtract out that and sort of let me through. Uh, So that's one is kind of adaptive way. Another way is, well, if you have, you know, multiple microphones, you can kind of, um, you know, add or subtract these microphone signals together. So you can actually sort of directionally steer uh, a beam to where you're listening to. Uh, so this is what a lot of um, devices do, like, uh, like AirPods kind of do this, they will listen sort of straight in front of you and create some uh, a virtual microphone that is only sensitive to uh, in front of you. This is another thing that people can do. And then, you know, there's more even more basic things that you can do say, well, when people are talking, uh, let's say I'm interested in speech, you know, you don't, you can't generate all, you know, tones, uh, you know, human speech is a certain frequency band. So anything outside of there, you can throw away. And, you know, there, there are, you know, these are just some of the techniques. There are, you know, probably a lot more sophisticated things, uh, a lot more simple things, but uh, all of these, the common thread is like, they are kind of approximations to, to try to capture what designers might think you care about. But fundamentally, there's no sort of meaning attached to that. And, you know, the follow-up question is like, okay, so what do you do different? <laughs> so this is where, again, you know, artificial intelligence comes in. Because just like in the image world, where now you explicitly label like a cat image or a dog image, and you say, please distinguish these two, you can now, for, you know, sound samples and examples, say, this is an example of things that I want to, you know, let through and examples of things that I don't want to let through. So you've attached meaning now to those sounds. And this makes it a, a little bit closer, perhaps, to what uh, extracting, you know, the, the signals that you care about, because you can explicitly tell the system and train the system to, to learn what those signals are and what they are not. It sounds like a great application of AI, right? But how about performance? How does this perform when compared to, you know, other solutions that are out there? Yeah, I think it. Uh, I think it's quite competitive. You know, this is a newer technology, so it's always under development. But for example, I will, um, you know, some of the things where uh, these classical algorithms don't do so well is um, when there are sort of, let's say, you're doing the adaptive stuff when there are transients, right? So, uh, you know, I have a 
you know, little piece of metal here, right? So I tap on the table, you know, I think you could probably hear that, right? So those kinds of things, they will get through your adaptive algorithm, just like your speech got through the adaptive algorithm. And actually, if you're talking hearing aids, you know, the whole point of hearing aids too is to amplify <laughs> and correct for hearing uh, loss. So you're amplifying these uh, impulsive noises, which is exactly what you don't want to do. <laughs> and that, that, you know, that's, that's part of the reason why uh, folks with sort of current technologies that aren't super sophisticated, you know, that's why they don't go to places like, uh, you know, restaurants or, or those kind of settings, because there are every time you're, you set your cup down or your fork touches your plate, there are these kinds of noises that come through and it's just not a pleasant experience, which is, you know, that's a shame because that's exactly <laughs> what you don't want people to, you don't want people to stop going to social settings. Uh, you want them to continue to engage and be part of healthy, uh, uh, you know, active lifestyle. Um, so that's kind of how the problems of the current algorithms and, you know, handling transients translates to the bad user experience and then ultimately translates into uh, worse health outcomes. Uh, and so, yes, with AI, you know, you can label these things. You could say, hey, you know, I understand this is transient and also people are transient, but, you know, this is a fork. <laughs> so please don't let the fork sound through. Please just let the human through. Where do you begin with deep learning techniques? In general, <laughs> in, you know, in general, you know, it really does, at least in today's uh, widely spread algorithms, it comes down to having those examples uh, of saying, okay, well, if you have data that is, you know, what we call labeled, you say, okay, well, here's examples that are, you know, cats, dogs, or fork sounds, or car sounds, or people sounds, you, you start with that, and then you will architect some uh, neural network approximation of biology, but there's, there's sort of, it's grown into its own field, and then you uh, iteratively, you know, train the network. And what that means is you give it examples of what is uh, good and what is bad. And, you know, when the network gets it right, get a little bit of reward. And when it uh, gets it wrong, it <laughs> sort of loses, uh, loses some of that reward. And it's just trained to maximize or it is, is uh, what your goal is to maximize the performance uh, on the tasks. And so uh, using the magic of uh, calculus <laughs> and chain rule, you can propagate all those errors, those correct uh, signals and incorrect signals through all of the various parameters and knobs uh, of the neural network, right? And you can, uh, they can tell you which way you should adjust things so that it gets it, you know, a little bit more right uh, each time. And you do this enough. Uh, and that's how uh, you build uh, your algorithms. In a much oversimplified way. <laughs> so that is, that's kind of getting into my next question, which is like, what happens during the training phase? And then, you know, after once your model is trained, what else happens? Like you mentioned labeling, but can, can you go into it? How do you specifics? Like, how do you train these algorithms? How do you clean that data? You know, how do you choose what you're, what kind of data you're working with? And then what do you do after? Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the data question is uh, a fundamental, you know, you could say, you know, pain point or requirement of, uh, you know, the, the popular AI models these days. So a lot of what you see out there uh, deployed is kind of defined by, you know, where data is easily accessible. So, for example, if you can scrape the internet for all of your data, you could probably get a good set of data there. And so for this particular application of, um, you know, extracting speech from everything else, yeah, you can get a lot of examples of uh, people speaking from the internet, and you can also get a lot of examples of other sounds. And so, you know, that's that's how you would uh, build your data. And then in terms of the sort of neural network training and infrastructure, to be short, you just you use the software packages <laughs> that PyTorch, TensorFlow, Jax, you know, whatever your preferred framework is, you will use those to describe your neural network architecture. Uh, so how do you combine uh, neurons and their connections uh, together to 
uh, you know, create this massive structure, which then you train, right? And so you know, training is uh, roughly, as I talked about before, where you show it examples of good and bad, you get an objective to try to maximize, uh, and then whenever uh, it gets it right or wrong, uh, you use, um, you know, again, you really use the software <laughs> to do this, but, you know, and the underlying math, what you're doing is you're uh, taking the derivative of the error with respect to, you know, the various intermediate values of the network and the parameters of the network. So you're just propagated through the, the network and those tell you, you know, sort of in which direction you should, uh, you should move things to, you know, minimize the error and maximize the objective. Maybe one level of things that I haven't uh, talked about is, you know, you probably do want some <laughs> significant compute to back uh, the stuff because, you know, you're, you're probably going to want uh, these days, more or less, you're going to use some uh, GPU to, uh, you know, uh, go through lots of lots of examples very quickly and, you know, do these fine tunings, these sort of small incremental changes in parallel and in and, and rapid succession. Uh, so as you get to larger networks, yes, this is when you get to requiring more and more GPUs to train. And yeah, that can, it can be costly, <laughs> depending on how big a thing you want to do. Like, I, I don't know what the, uh, you know, bill of bill of uh, electricity or <laughs> GPUs or you know special purpose hardware it took to train some of these large models. Not to mention all the salaries of people who are developing and iterating on it. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's uh, quite up there. But you know, you can recreate baby networks, uh, no problem on laptops or you know, spin up a cloud compute instance. You know, what what have you? That, that's uh, well within tractability. Yeah, you can, the listener, like it's literally out there, um, open source. Very cool. Okay, so, you know, these techniques, from my limited understanding, they've achieved good performance in research settings, but they haven't really been deployed too effectively in hearing aids. You know, we mentioned um, earlier, mm-hmm. one in six people that's afflicted is really making use of um, hearing aid treatment or hearing aids. If we have the, if we have the technology, you know, why, is, why, why aren't people using it? <laughs> well, so we, you know, there's a few layers of technology, right? Sure, there is the kind of algorithm and application uh, layer, right? So yes, we have that. That's kind of what you said with the the research, right? So the research shows that yes, you should be able to do this, but a real bottleneck is, you know, how how do you actually implement that on the real physical product that has you know constraints like it has to be small, <laughs> lightweight, the battery is only a certain size, it has to last for you know a few days. It has to be cost effective, right? That's a challenge, and that's sort of the technological gap that FemtoSense is more or less designed to try to address, right? So again, it goes back to that uh, very early point about making uh, AI more efficient, right? So yeah, if you have, if you have, if your algorithm has billions and trillions of operations and things to store. That's hard to fit in a small product, right? That's just physically you can't fit it, let alone support it on the battery that has like your battery would burn out in very no like no time at all, right? So these sort of just engineering challenges, right? They really are practical limitations on what is feasible in those kinds of small form factor, you know, products, right? And so this is why you still see a lot of these classical algorithms, you know, more or less dominating the world uh, or the, the world of hearing because you know, these newer AI approaches, they're just too heavy, right? You know, they just cost too much energy, they're not fast enough, and or too much space with the current hardware. <laughs> so with uh, our hardware that we build, uh, we make that feasible, right, within the reasonable constraints of uh, product design, right? So if you can reduce the energy by, you know, 10 times, 100 times, uh, okay, that's those translate directly to how long your battery is going to last. If you can uh, shrink the 
sort of silicon footprint by you know ten times, you also bring down the cost, and you know the uh, the sort of form factors uh, also become uh, possible too. So this is like the uh, the swap balancing act. Do you want to, do you want to talk about um, what's in there? Yeah, size, weight, power. Sometimes they'll add a C, so size, weight, and power, and uh, size, weight, area, power, and cost. These are all things that you know if you are building a real physical product, you have to deal with for better or worse because you know we're in a uh, physical world and there are uh, costs associated with things. So yeah, as you squeeze. We're not in the metaverse yet, and maybe maybe everything is going to be gravy there, and then we don't we can really let loose on our creativity. But for now, we we live in the um, uh, real verse, uh, meat verse, and you know you have to you have to satisfy all you know all these constraints really, <laughs> like to make a compelling product. Uh, it's like you know when cell phones were first developed, they were like bricks, right? And uh, you know as a consequence. Maybe they didn't have the widest adoption they do now because, you know, it's practically, well, it costs, you know, probably a lot more than it effectively costs now. You know, who's going to carry a brick around next to their head? And, you know, how do you, you know, manufacture lots of these and, and get the demand? So, you know, all of these things matter for the product developers. And, uh, but if the product developers have more efficient building blocks like processors or, uh, you know, other materials, then, then they can enable, you know, more compelling products, which then drive adoption, which then uh, reduce the cost because of, you know, the, the economies of scale. So, yeah, these are things are all tied together and it's a wonderfully complex uh, sort of product development cycle. Really interesting. What would you say the most important constraint is for speech enhancement? Uh, for the AI based speech enhancement, I think it is the power and speed and size. <laughs> You know, for the hearing aid world, the things are already kind of expensive. So maybe that's not the most constraining, but power, like people, you don't want your hearing aid dying right in the middle of a conversation. That would be bad. People kind of expect these things to last at least uh, a day, if not a few days on one charge. So you don't have that much power to, you know, you don't have that much battery juice to, to spare. Speed, this is another thing that's very big. So you know, I'm not sure if this uh, recording platform is doing any uh, noise reduction, but, you know, platforms like, uh, you know, Zoom, uh, Microsoft Teams, Google Hangouts, you know, they're all doing this kind of uh, noise reduction, but it's okay if there's a delay between, you know, a little bit of a delay between when, say, I say something and you hear it because we're not face-to-face. So, you know, tens of milliseconds, uh, maybe even a hundred, you know, depending on your internet connection of delay in there, it starts to go into uncanny valley. Uh, and it also uh, becomes sort of distracting. Um, because, you know, one, it's kind of like, you, I see you saying something, but then I don't hear you for uh, like half a second, that would be weird. Right? I would I would be distracted by that. You can also get, you know, some some echo kind of going on too. And so yeah, it's, it's, it's harder, it's a harder problem, right? Because you have to do this processing, but you have to do it in, say, you know, five milliseconds instead of uh, 50 milliseconds, right? So now your problem is 10x harder, right? And remember, don't forget, you had that battery constraint at the beginning, right? So uh, these two really conspire to preclude these artificial intelligence workloads from or applications from being deployed in the in the hearing, hearing aid world. So if that's the case, why is now the right time for your company to deploy some of those solutions? Yeah, so why now? You know, because our technology is available, <laughs> but, you know, to, to go a bit into the actual technology that we're using. So, you know, from all that research that we did way back in, in PhD land, uh, we don't, we're not taking that exactly uh, and using that. We're taking a couple principles from that, right? So this will, 
I guess, be setting some technical context for what we actually do and why this uh, matters to those products. So Femtosense, we're all about, you know, sparse math processing acceleration, as well as sort of uh, we call it near memory or distributed computer architecture approaches, right? So what that means is that, okay, so, you know, we talked about how these AI workloads have, you know, millions, billions, trillions of things going on, right? <laughs> every time you want to, every time you query now these algorithms, like a lot of stuff has happened. And, you know, what you can do is train these networks. So not all that has to happen, right? One of the things that is not as common these days is that, beyond just incentivizing your neural network to do well on the task, you should also tell it in its objective that everything it does and everything that it stores is going to have some cost, whether it's time, energy, or uh, area, right? And so when you make your neural network kind of aware of this stuff, right, it can be, oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I will make sort of judicious use of the parameters, the weights that connect neurons together, the, the times when neurons activate together so that I'm not doing all the possible work that I could do. I'm only doing a very small uh, subset of that. So we found that you could uh, reduce up to 99, eliminate up to 99% of the work that a network has to do for a given input without really impacting performance. Uh, and also you can eliminate, say, 9 out of 10 uh, sort of pieces of information that the network actually has to, uh, has to be physically stored, right? And so this basically lightens up the neural network. It makes it so that uh, you're only paying, you know, a hundredth of the energy cost or a tenth of the area cost, right? And by using our hardware that can actually exploit that in the neural network structure to work more efficiently, this is how you can bring yourself to within a kind of battery budget that, say, a hearing aid would have uh, the form factor that, you know, those packages demand, right? And then, of course, uh, enable these features, right? So, you know, it's a combination of these algorithm approaches, you know, telling the neural network, like, hey, Everything you do is going to cost something, uh, and then building hardware to actually exploit the structure of the neural network uh, after you've done that procedure. Um, that's how you. That's that's our take on how you make these workloads more efficient uh, and actually deploy them in these small devices. Talk about how you achieve best in class performance uh, in speech enhancement. So this this is tied to uh, you know those approaches I was talking about. So it's not surprising that as you make bigger and bigger neural networks that these things perform better and better. But then, of course, the um, cost of deployment goes up as well. So if you have a way of deploying the neural networks for, you know, a tenth of the cost or a hundredth of the cost in terms of energy, area, money, or time, then you, you then you can deploy much more interesting kinds of applications or, you know, achieve that best-in-class performance. You know, these days we have the, um, the wake-up words, right? You do, uh, hey, Alexa, hey, Google, hey, Siri, right? These are all that's kind of pretty common sort of out in the world, sort of in the in the edge, that's what it's called. But, you know, that's been around since like 2015, right? And, you know, one thing you can ask is like, why are those sort of the uh, limit of applications that these small uh, products can do? And, you know, if you trace it, it's it's because, yeah, it's, uh, it's very expensive from an energy uh, and money and time uh, perspective to uh, deploy these algorithms on the existing processors. So them to sense we build, uh, you know, new kind of processors so that you can run these efficiently. And so this is how you can enable these uh, best in class performance. And I know you're out of a lab, but this kind of feels like a silly question. Like, is anyone else doing this, I guess, is my question. And really, I want to know, like, what's unique? What makes you stand out from the crowd? But, you know, I, I understand you're kind of working on the bleeding edge of technology here. Is anyone else doing this? Not in the exact sort of formulation that we're doing. I mean, there are degrees of similarity. There's certainly, uh, people have certainly recognized that, 
okay, so you know, GPUs have really popularized or helped enable the deep learning revolution, right? When researchers recognize that's like, okay, you know, the kinds of neural network uh, algorithms uh, are actually, you know, fairly well suited to a GPU you know, computer architecture, you could do something quite interesting. So that's what really kicked off uh, the deep learning revolution. And we've kind of taken that step uh, a little bit further. It's like, instead of just trying to shrink down what fundamentally is a GPU, which is what a lot of uh, companies are trying to do, we're kind of saying that, well, you know, if you make hardware just for uh, AI uh, that can work in a certain way, then you can do even better, right? It's just always this match between, you know, the, the physical hardware that you're running on and the workload that you're trying to support. Uh, that's where you can make things really efficient, right? And so, you know, the space of, uh, uh, there are a lot of, you know, companies trying to do accelerators, but there's not as many that are trying to do both Know, development at the kind of algorithm level that other people are working on, uh, as well as kind of simultaneous development at the uh, at the hardware level. And this is where we kind of can stand out is that we are just as much a chip company as a software company, as an algorithm development uh, company. We do the full thing because that's really how you can squeeze out the efficiency you need to make this practical to deploy uh, on the world. I think a lot of the um, you know, maybe competitor companies are, they're really at their heart and soul, <laughs> just a chip company, right? So a lot of teams we've seen have sort of come out of the chip industry before, where there is very much a divide between, you know, you are either a hardware guy or you are a, you know, software, you know, person, right? Uh, you know, to, to be more gender agnostic, right? And so they don't really think across all of these layers. And what our angle is like, we're like, you know, if you can make changes in the algorithms that uh, existing hardware can't take advantage of, well, you could do something pretty interesting there as long as you also do the hardware, right? So, and by doing this kind of vertical integration, that's how we, that's how we compete uh, in terms of performance uh, and then all that swap C stuff that we uh, were talking about before. Who are you building this with? Like, who are you, who's your team? And were you always on both the hardware and software side? Yeah, I mean, our, it is a uh, complicated world when you do decide to play in all those uh, areas. But our team, you know, spans the whole gamut. We have people who are doing the the chip design. We have our own custom architecture. We have our own custom digital logic. We do our own layout. We work with partners, of course, to manufacture. We are, you know, what's called fabless model. Like we don't literally manufacture the chips ourselves. We just design them. And then looking up from there, we also have you know, a software team that builds compiler because without software, your nice fancy piece of silicon is really just a pile of sand uh, or paperweight. So, you know, you don't want that. You need to build the real tooling that makes it, you know, gives a nice developer experience. And then that's not that's not just words. Like we also have our, our AI developers as well who are building these kind of algorithms like the speech enhancement, right? So who are using the tools that we also build to, you know, take their AI model descriptions and map it down to our, uh, custom instruction set, figure out also the, you know, where, which parts of the algorithm, or figure out which parts of the algorithm go where, you know, because it is a, a distributed uh, architecture down the hardware level. And so I think yeah, if you meet people from uh, the company, you'll find that they tend to be be able to think across multiple levels, because that's kind of required when you are trying to build these vertically integrated systems is like you can't sort of silo yourself in one place. Yes, you do have to be good <laughs> at a certain task, right? But in order to make reasonable decisions in a timely manner, you do have to have, if not, you know, awareness at least of what's above you and what's below you, but also have some uh, understanding of kind of the full stack system. But talk about some some of the key milestones. Like the company's been around since 2018. It's pivoted a few times, I believe. So what are some of the key milestones that you achieved along that, you know, five-year journey to this point? 
Well, I guess I can start with the pivots. <laughs> so, you know, when we started the company, yes, we did start with more or less the technology we developed uh, in the lab. And, you know, I think about a year in is when we decided that, well, what makes for good research technology does not make for uh, the best um, or the most uh, practical, commercializable technology. And so, you know, we're in the lab, we were doing, uh, when we get technical jargon, we were doing, you know, sub-threshold uh, analog circuit design. We were doing uh, asynchronous digital design where there's no clock anywhere <laughs> in the chip. And we were working with, you know, spiking neural networks at the algorithm level. And all that is sort of well and good, but we found that that was, you know, rather difficult to match with kind of the commercial demands that we were seeing from, uh, you know, prospective customers, right? Prospective customers care about, you know, how reliable is the system? Like it's it's very different from getting, you know, one system to work and then characterize it and publish and then graduate <laughs> from getting like, you know, 100 million systems to, to work kind of consistently, right? So that's that's one. Also the, uh, the programming model of the spiking neural networks, it was, you know, the performance wasn't quite there compared to what else existed out there. So even if you could claim more efficient operations, I mean, really, you should be controlling for performance, right? It's, is it more efficient at the same performance? And so, sure, there is some nice biological uh, justification for using, you know, spikes uh, at the circuit level, but we found that that wasn't really helping us in the, in the, in the tasks, right? And, um, you know, not to say that that whole approach is wrong, it's saying that there are some good principles from that sort of design style that were applicable to technology that sort of existed, namely, you know, the sparse math and the sort of distributed computation. So why don't you just take those and put it in a standard digital flow where there is a clock uh, and you can work with algorithms that people, you know, pop out of PyTorch and TensorFlow. Like, why don't you do that if you can get most of your gains there and kind of start there? And then you can always come back to the more researchy stuff when it has developed a little bit more or, you know, for whatever reasons, the timing uh, seems better. So that was our big pivot, <laughs> big technical pivot from, you know, asynchronous digital plus substance analog spiking to synchronous digital design with programming frameworks that's compatible with the common machine learning workflows, right? While still embodying lots of the principles that, you know, made the original system efficient to begin with. So after that, you know, we, uh, I guess the next milestone, we got to our FPGA prototype. So this is sort of hardware prototype. We were able to execute our uh, Series A fundraise. So we uh, closed that out this last uh, October, 2022. And yeah, and then we got to the first, uh, you know, real hardware using this uh, new technology. So uh, we got our first batch of silicon back, you know, around November last year, 2022. And we used that to do real demonstrations of these kind of AI speech enhancement uh, algorithms at, for example, CES is where we were last uh, demoing it. And, um, you know, now we are gearing up and uh, uh, working with, you know, all of the various uh, companies that have gotten interested in this sort of technology to really, you know, build them into proof of concepts, into uh, evaluations, and, you know, really test it with their users uh, with the target of going to mass production in, uh, you know, as soon as Q3 uh, of this year. What kind of partnerships have you have you been building? Talk about some of them. So, yeah, we work, I can't name names, but we work, uh, you know, across the board in terms of the uh, consumer electronics space. So any companies building, of course, we already mentioned the hearing aids, but the, the true wireless stereo earbuds uh, is another area. Consumer electronics, anything in your home that you want to say control with your voice, that, that's something that's becoming more popular. We also, uh, and so we work with both the people developing the products as well as the suppliers of those uh, companies. And then we're also working with other processor companies to, you know, potentially take 
our hardware design and integrate it into their existing kind of main application or, or host uh, processor to enable larger scale uh, AI. So uh, everything from uh, you know chip partners to uh, sort of electronic supply chain uh, partners to the actual product developers. We are partnering with people uh, or firms uh, across the board. There, we are definitely a B two B play. So you know, hopefully, you'll see some of our uh, uh, features that we enable in uh, products soon. What can you say about the business model and how how you make money? I know you're kind of pre revenue at this point. But what's the what's the at least the model? Yeah, so you know, there's a few few go to markets. One is go to go to market with the chips, right? So we got our silicon back. Um, there are definitely companies for which this makes a differentiation, uh, significant differentiation in their products. So building these chips uh, in in volume and selling them is as simple as it gets. There are also the other customers who are on the chip developers themselves. So working our designs into their designs, there's a standard IP licensing kind of pathway there. And then there's a little bit of, well, because we develop the applications, we also are able to license those as well. And so we either partner with firms to port some of their applications to our uh, hardware, or you know we also have our own uh, application uh, offerings as well. So it's three things. It's the, the software, the hardware is you know, hard silicon, and then the, uh, the hardware is a design. Uh, which we integrate in other hardware. What's the most important lesson you've learned so far as a founder? Uh, I think it is being responsive and uh, really listening to to be like you know what the market is telling you, but you know at a granular level that means what sort of the customers are telling you. You know when they are you know when they seem to hesitate uh, at certain things like oh you know uh, you know that that's always a you know uh, something that you may want to spend some you know, mental cycles thinking about or, you know, ask about, right? And this is, this is, this is a lot of how we did our big technical pivot is by sort of, you know, thinking about what it would actually take to integrate with the customer's stuff, talking to them, figuring out like, okay, well, you know, why are they, you know, hesitating or not? And, um, you know, this is, yeah, I, I don't think, I, I think that as, uh, you know, startup founders, you, you absolutely have to listen and adapt and respond to what your customers are saying and thinking, or you sort of have to think about what they're thinking a lot, uh, because, you know, you're trying to, you're in there everywhere, we're all in the business of, uh, you know, making, making money. So who, who is going to pay us if not willing and uh, able customers? You know, I got one more bonus question here, Sam, you said you could stay a couple extra minutes. Uh, what's your highest high and your lowest low so far as a founder? <laughs> highest high? Uh, well, I guess, you know, it's getting our I was about to say it's getting our silicon back, but I might say it's getting our silicon back and having it work when it turns on, right? And it sort of behaves the way that you expect it to behave. That is a big stress relief. <laughs> it is just sort of inherent to this uh, the semiconductor industry that when you press sort of uh, compile or deploy or manufacture, right, you're waiting like three months before anything comes back, let alone testing it and stuff, right? So, uh, you know, in software world, you can compile and iterate quite quickly, right? So, so that's, yeah, that is a huge risk. And so that's a huge relief when you, you know, get over that hurdle. Yeah. So, so that's, I would say is the biggest high, but, you know, I think that there'll be higher highs than that, especially as we start to really engage with customers and see their prototypes kind of make it to, to real user testing and see that, okay, it really delivers value. I think they'll probably be uh, a much higher high. <laughs> and then the, um, you know, lowest lows, I mean, you know, uh, the economy is all, all these headwinds. And so doing doing fundraising in these uh, these environments was uh, was certainly challenging. So, you know, finding the, the right partners who were able to uh, work with, we had, that, was, that was certainly a search. It wasn't sort of days of free money, but... We were able to get through that. And so you know, we got to our silicon and now we are uh, getting our first engagements. All right. Well, that's very exciting. Um, and again, congrats. It sounds like uh, it was challenging, but you did uh, secure the bag, so to speak. 
Before we go, what's the best way for listeners to reach you, learn more about Femtosense, and if you have any kind of calls to action here, now's the time to mention those. So we're B2B, right? So if you are in, uh, you know, firms who develop these kinds of uh, electronics, you know, please do reach out to us. We are spinning up uh, engagements now. You can be reached. Uh, so, you know, my email is just sam at femtosense.ai. Uh, we also have our sort of uh, open email of just hello at femtosense AI. So either one of those, I'll see it uh, either way. And yeah, I look forward to finding good partners to work with. And, uh, you know, even if you're not in maybe a firm that's developing products that could use AI, definitely be on the lookout for these kinds of features. And um, I don't know, develop kind of an expectation that products should be smarter and, uh, you know, more responsive to people as people sort of naturally behave, right? That's uh, That's ultimately kind of the the whole AI value proposition. And so, yeah, if people, people want it, then uh, it will get built. Awesome words. All right, we're going to end the show there. If you liked it, please subscribe wherever you do listen to podcasts and leave us a rating. Sam, thanks for joining the show. We appreciate your time, your expertise. It sounds like you're doing some incredible things. So uh, we're, we're excited to see where it goes. Right. Okay. Thank you, Oleg. And um, hopefully our audience uh, had uh, learned something today. I'm sure they did. All right. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.